I'm Mike Gorman, and you're listening to the Celtics Pod podcast for Celtics Blog. What's going on, everybody? Happy Friday. We're recording the show before the game against the Lakers because, well, 3 a.m. tip-off is not meaning I'm recording after the Lakers game. I'm joined by Will Weir, um, one of the new co-hosts that you met on Monday's episode. Will, what's going on, my guy? Hey, what's going on, Adam? Loving the fresh lineup, man. We uh, we might have to get you some iced coffee out there or something so we can try and get you up for these 3 a.m. tips. <laughs> Bro, I just got some Dunkin' Donuts imported and um, the coffee, the French vanilla stuff. Oh, okay, um, nice. Used to be like, used to be like 25 pounds a bag, and um, they've dropped it down to like eight pounds. So like... um. I'm like, yo, that's like a third of the price, pretty much. Well, just just under or just over. Um, so I ordered a couple of bags. So I've got the coffee. I can make it happen. But, uh, dude, I, I'm waking up at like 6 a.m. and the game's just finishing. So it, it's not like I'm missing out too heavily. Yeah. It's just that live tweeting aspect that I'll be missing. No, I'll be honest, man. 3 a.m., that's, that's extremely brutal. And I feel like I can't even uh, talk to you or complain to you about, like, West Coast late games here in the U.S., especially I'm in Central Time, so I get an hour reprieve from any of you that are listening on the East Coast. So there's no chance I can, I can come up with any complaints with you right now. <laughs> I remember being in L.A., man, and I think I spoke about this on this show before, and it blew my mind how early games were on. Like, I'd be coming yes. home from the – I remember coming home from the zoo, um, we like obviously took my daughter to LA Zoo. We were coming home, and I was like, "There's going to be a game soon, so I want to watch this game." And then after the game, we're going to go and do the um, the observatory. Um, oh, that's actually Griffith, really cool. The the Griffith, Griffith Observatory. Yeah. yeah, it's really cool. So we get back, and I'm like, "The game's nearly finished." I'm like, "How? It's like 5 p.m. in the afternoon. Why is there a game? Well, how is it? I'm yeah. used to having to stay up until midnight for the game to start." <laughs> It just blew my mind. Uh, I was really upset because obviously I don't have TiVo where I'm at because I'm just staying in like an Airbnb. Yeah. Um, but it just blew my mind, man. So these people on the West Coast have got it real good, real, real good. Well, well, here's the thing, man. Cause I, I, th- I think ultimately Central Time Zone. So I'm located in Austin, Texas. For for those of you listening that are just getting acquainted to, to me being on the show here, I'm located in Austin, born and raised in Boston. So I've been on the East Coast, been in Central Time Zone. Central Time Zone, one hour earlier than the East Coast. So you get done with those late games just a little bit earlier. Save that time. On the West Coast, I had this, a very similar experience. I remember it was specifically the Celtics and Magic in 2010. So that conference finals right before, you know, very appropriately, that, that second finals matchup against the Lakers. And I remember being out there for the first time and watching a game at 4 o'clock. That's usually, you know, like a, more of a primetime affair, 7 o'clock, 730 uh, on the East Coast. And the game ended and it was still it was summertime or close to summertime. So it was still light out. It was like a very weird feeling that I just finished watching that game and it's and it's still light out. It's like I have my whole night ahead of me, which I think is great. But then also like, you know, thinking of it from my normal watching habits that I grew up with in Boston doing now in Austin, it kind of throws off your whole day when you have to be locked in from that, you know, four to seven, which I'm sure some days is very nice. And if you do it for a living, it's probably fantastic. But if you're trying to juggle other parts of your life and you're squeezing it into the middle of the day, it's like, what do you prioritize before and after? So that's a whole other, uh, you know, experience being on the West Coast experience and some of these tip offs. So we flew out there for a wedding. And um, after that wedding, like uh, we had ours planned and we got married on the outskirts of Vegas. And um, I remember getting married and coming out of the the, like, the wedding chapel at like must have been 4 p.m. 
um, California time, LA, mm-hmm. um, Vegas time, and going into a bar and watching a Warriors game. And I'm yeah. like, dude, this is like 4 p.m. I'm drinking shots. I'm drinking <laughs> beers. I'm I'm wearing a short suit, you know, the, the suits with the short. I feel like I'm LeBron, like living the <laughs> high life. And I'm like, dude, it's 4 p.m. Like the game finishes. I've still got this whole like hangover. It kind of, me- it kind of messes with like, you mentally a little bit. <laughs> yeah, dude. Like a, I re- that whole night was like a movie anyway. Like it just went absolutely insane. Vegas. Yeah, time. Vegas wedding. I can imagine. I mean, that's, that feels, I mean, it's like they've almost made a movie like that. <laughs> Yeah, exactly, like, dude. <laughs> but um, yeah, it threw me off completely, dude. And I feel like waking up at six or seven a.m. and watching it fresh is so much more beneficial for me than waking up, than staying up or waking up to watch it at three. Whether I'm gonna have, I, I rewatch games anyway. I try and get a second watching mm-hmm. just so I can break it down a bit more. Um, if if I watch one at three a.m. and I've just woke up, I'm effectively gonna have to watch it three times. Because yeah. the first one, I'm just going to be like... You can say you watched it, but you didn't really actually watch it. Yeah, dude. My brain's drifting off to what I'm going to eat for breakfast. Or No, man. get your, get your d- Watch it when you wake up. Get your Dunkin' and you're good to go. Yeah, dude. I'm telling you. I'm, I'm Dunkin's in a short stack and I'm all good, man. I'm all good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Will's just showing his uh, iced coffee to the screen for anybody that's uh, not watching on YouTube. Because we are putting clips of this up on YouTube. So with Chujuri over five minutes, you know, you've got to know us a little bit more. Let's get into the basketball talk. It's why we're all here, right? Let's do it. There's no point talking baseball because nobody really cares. Um, (laughs) It's just my personal opinion. I'm only joking. Didn't mean to offend. Where do you want to start? I mean, there's been more stuff to unravel. There's some predictions that we can throw out there. I think the primary thing from the last game against the Blazers was Marcus Smart, in my opinion. Um, Playing some amazing defense. Locked up Dame Lillard. Locked up CJ. Had multiple hustle plays, got up and down the floor, great. Um, you can tell he's just back in that floor general mode on both ends of the floor. What are you seeing from Marcus that you're enjoying and that kind of strikes you as different from the beginning of the year? Yeah, I mean, I think Marcus Smart's a great place to start here. He was, you know, we talk about watching these West Coast games. He's someone that you could feel his energy through the, through the screen on that game. You know, I talked about on uh, on my own podcast with the other co-host, Greg, here, that, you know, watching that game, I was on the edge of my seat just from Marcus Smart. You know, those sequences, think back to the second quarter one where Tatum gets the deflection in the backcourt. Smart comes uh, with, with, you know, maybe a little misguided dive where he didn't really have a chance at the ball, but that energy, you know, that really meant something. And then, of of course, he gets back, intercepts it, and does an amazing job of keeping it in bounds. And, you know, they talked about this a little bit in the presser after the game. Is, you know, has Marcus Smart really been missing something more than just he's still recovering from that injury? You know, missing 18 games, that's a significant stretch of time. Uh, the schedule, it's it's horrendous. You know, it's, it's, it's brutal on podcasters, never mind just the actual players in the game trying to keep up three, four games a week. Like that's, that's tough to do and manage your minutes, come back, get into the flow. And so, you know, really what I think you've seen is, is Marcus Smart getting back to his flow and his flow is something that I think is very unique because Marcus playing, you know, almost recklessly in control is his style, but him being efficient within that manner is really what elevates the Celtics here. So I, I think he's been getting back to that lately. And I, you know, I don't want to step on your toes too much here because you put out an article on Celtics blog where you had some really good defensive stats from this that, you know, I'd love for you to tell me a little bit more about what you saw specifically in that game and, you know, how that meshes up with what you're seeing from him over this last stretch. Yeah, I mean, for me, a lot of the stats I like to look at are the hustle numbers. Like, more than 
Oh, how many more than match update? A match update is great, but I think hustle stats speak a lot louder. Like, um, I prefer to see a ton of deflections rather than a load of steals, just because that means you're really pressuring the passing lanes. Deflections to me are just as valuable because they can kill a fast break, they can kill uh, an offensive set, or they'll force you into a side or baseline out of bounds play. So when you look at Marcus Smart's game, and these numbers are in the article, so I'm not going to go word verbatim on them, but you know he held Lillard to 20% shooting. I think he had some like four or five deflections in that game. He had a couple of steals. He had was he seven assists? I, I believe so. Seven, yeah, seven assists. He had four rebounds. Um, he'd done so much. He contested. Um, I think he contested like 10 shots, held guys to like 40% shooting off those contests. He was just playing with like ridiculous hustle. And what I like about Marcus Smart when he's that version of Marcus Smart is he's locked into the point where there's no heat check shots really. He's not trying to lead the line as a scorer. He's trying to lead the line as, hmm, what's that guy's name from 300? Um, the Gerard Butler, the lead, Le- yeah, same guy we're that's, talking about. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's what he's trying to do. He wants to lead the troops into battle, true Leonidas style. And it's not so much about being able to throw the big bombs. It's about being yes. able to take those hits and keep coming, as our man Rocky once said. And this is what Marcus embodies. And when he's playing like that with that level of hustle and that level of grit, it kind of makes everybody else have to hold themselves accountable because of that, right? Like, because, hey, if Marcus is diving on the floor for a, a 2% chance of recovering that play, we need to do it when there's a 70% chance of recovering that play. And you see, like, um, this, I remember thinking to myself when I was watching that game, if you look at the second unit of, like, Marcus Smart, Peyton Pritchard, you've got Romeo Langford in there, you can squad somebody in at the four, maybe keep Jason Tatum out there, and then a Tristan Thompson. Their second unit is mm-hmm. so defensively tough and so versatile in their ability to switch one through five and pressure the perimeter, rotate off the backside, um, weak side, backside, whatever you want to call it there. Um, they're just it's so difficult for second units. And look, let's be honest with you. When a team's as top-heavy as what Boston are, it's the second unit that's going to win or lose you that game, depending on how well they operate during their minutes. And I think that Brad Stevens and the coaching staff have really stumbled upon this second unit now that once Evan Fournier is back, has got a real scoring punch, but has got a real depth in defensive versatility. Yeah, as you were going through that lineup, I think that's the first thing that jumped to my mind is what if we slot Evan Fournier into that lineup and really create a little bit of additional versatility on both sides just because of his natural 6'7", 6'8", size that he has, and then also what he brings to you on the offensive end. But, but kind of touching on something else that you said, you said this version of Marcus Smart. And that's something that, that I always think about when it comes to Marcus, because sometimes from game to game, we get different versions of Marcus. You know, I can't remember what podcast I was listening to. I, I want to say maybe it was the dunker spot with Nikias Duncan, but um, I believe he was saying that, you know, Marcus Smart in his ideal role, he's that guy that fills the gap on a nightly basis where they need to be filled. Now, sometimes he takes it upon himself to decide where those gaps need to be filled. And that's where maybe sometimes things can go a little haywire. So one of the things that I've started to keep an eye on this year with Marcus Smart is I found kind of the the breaking point for him from a shot attempt standpoint of of where things kind of go haywire for the Celtics. And so, so far this year, in games where Marcus Smart has shot the ball, field goal attempts, 12 times or less, Celtics are 17 and 9. Anytime he goes over those 12, 13 or more, they're 1 and 8. 
So it's it's from that, you know, Marcus Smart being this version of himself that you really see probably the greatest version of the Celtics. And, you know, just over these last 11 games, you know, not only has his defense picked up, but on offense, you're seeing that version of Marcus Smart, 10 and a half field goal attempts per game on 45 percent shooting, just under six threes a game, over 42 percent shooting. That's the type of efficient Marcus Smart that we need to go with six assists and keeping the ball moving. That's the Marcus Smart that's going to take us and that can really play with and he's the he's really probably the best bridge on this team, along with Tatum for scoring. But from that first to second unit, like you said, where he's going to be out there in crunch time. But then also with that second unit, he's probably going to be asked to be that point guard or that facilitator a lot of time. Do you know what I find really interesting? On the last episode, and this is kind of, you've kind of made me think of this as you're going through the, 10 point, um, the 12 field goal attempt. Because I agree. I think that Michael Smart's best when he's being teed up to shoot rather than having to hunt for his own shot where he's operating in a position where he waits until the shot is the best opportunity mm-hmm. available for the team not just for him but on the last episode we all did on monday um we spoke about whether or not kendrick perkins comments to jason tatum were part of what made jason tatum improve to the level that we've seen and increase that um intensity that he's playing with and i know that we messaged the other day because we'd said on there we don't know whether kendrick perkins would have actually spoke to tatum and you sent me a tweet saying yep kendrick and jt had a phone conversation well if anyone read that article um <laughs> if anyone read my marcus smart article like um they'll know that marcus smart and you've probably seen this if you're listening You've probably heard it or watched it. Marcus Smart was on the, I think it was 98.5. And he basically fired back at H. Rod Blakely and the Garden Report guys for saying that his defense had fell off and they don't think he was that level of player. And again, it's the criticism mm-hmm. from the media seems to have been part of what's got under Smart's skin to f- really fire this like renaissance of prime Marcus Smart. And he's been quite vocal saying that that was part of the reason why he's playing with that chip on his shoulder. And I just find it crazy that obviously this was a narrative we explored on Monday and now we're able to explore it for a different player on Friday. So what are your thoughts on his comments during 98.5, the way he's played? He referred to himself as a two-time NBA first-team guy in a press conference after the Portland game. So he's definitely trying to drive home the fact that, hey, I've done this my entire career. I was just having a bit of a dance spell. Yeah, so with, with Marcus Smart, you know, he, he's just kind of a different cat. You know, when we talked about the the comments that, that Perkins made about Tatum on the last pod, and we, you know, kind of got to a point where it's like, well, I don't know how much influence that might have had. Maybe they had a separate phone call. As you alluded to, sources were confirmed. They did have that conversation. And so clearly it did have some type of impact on Tatum. But when you look at a guy like Marcus Smart, you know, you referred to him as, I believe, a, you know, a pit bull in the article that you put out uh, recently. And so, you know, he's a guy that always plays with a chip on his shoulder and has constantly had that even from his college days at Oklahoma State. That's been something that's been evident since he came into the league, that he's that type of guy. And, you know, so I think for him, he, he looks at that as a source of motivation when he hears people in the media talking about him that way. You you mentioned his response to time, uh, first team, all defense, making sure people don't forget who he is. And ultimately, I think it, it comes back to, you know, him still recovering from that injury and getting annoyed that people aren't factoring that into, hey, you're back on the court. Why are you not, you know, lockdown defender of player X, whoever the, the Celtics are playing that night? And so, you know, when it comes to the media and whether or not, you know, it plays a role in how different guys play, I think some guys, some guys are just wired differently. 
For some, it's going to have a huge impact. They're going to use it as leverage, you know, as a chip on their shoulder, like I said, for Marcus. Others, you know, are going to be guys that just tune it out and they don't care what is said. But, you know, it, I think it's going to vary just guy to guy. And Marcus, I think, is an example of a guy who very much is going to take that and then spin that into motivation that he can use on the court. And we're seeing that play out right now. Yeah, the only downside in that is, man, it means that people have got to be kind of disingenuous and call him out for things that probably don't deserve getting called out for. Like, <laughs> I want guys to be hungry because they're hungry to win, you know? And Marcus Smart has always struck me as a guy that is just hungry to compete. And I don't want that narrative to become clouded or blurred because he's responding on the court to mm -hmm. criticism about his previous games. And I just feel like that could be something that could end up being a vicious cycle for him. Like, oh, Smart's in a 10-game slump. Let's slander the life out of this guy across social media because he's going to see, he's going to bite, bark, and then he's going to be right back at his peak. And I just don't think that's healthy for a, a, anyone to have to continually go through. So I hope it's not a trend that we're starting to see with this team where social media dictates how hard they're playing on the floor. And I don't think that will ever happen. But I think, as you say, from an individual standpoint, it's just something I'd like to kind of hope and I don't want to see become a regular occurrence from any one individual on the team. Oh, for sure. It's a slippery slope if, you know, if your motivation, and, and that's just with almost anything in life, you know, not to get too deep, but intrinsically, if you're looking at other people to provide you with motivation, you know, that's typically not a recipe for success. And so, you know, hopefully, like you said, with this team, it's not going to regularly be, well, hey, you know, thank God Perk called out Tate and thank God Asherod had something to say uh, about Marcus Smart. And now we're eight and three over the last 11 games. Like that's not a recipe that's ultimately going to lead for success. But I do think, you know, part of that relationship between the media and players is just so it's just the way social media ultimately, you know, ends up making that relationship. And you can see how messy it gets. Like, just look at the whole KD and, and Shannon Sharp, you know, kind of, you know, BS that you, that you kind of see out there right now. Like, it's a uh, so, social media is a weird place. And, and hopefully, like you said, it's not going to be something that, that we have to address too many times here as a, as a source of motivation for the Celtics. Yeah, sensationalism will just destroy things completely. You can say Marcus Smart had a poor game, and within a week, someone's like, do you remember when you said he was the worst player that ever played for the... It's just the way social media <laughs> is wired. And I understand it. Like Those type of hot takes and those type of spins get clicks, and those clicks make money. And you obviously have... Everybody's out there to make money. It yeah. makes, unfortunately, that's just how the world works. Uh, but I don't agree with it. And hopefully, that, like you say, it's not something that becomes a staple of motivation for Marcus Smart or Jason Tatum or whoever it may be. But then there's another guy that's had injuries, and this is what you call segueing. Everybody Love listening, me, me and Will, segue kings. Let's um, go. An another guy who's had, um, I didn't make it as smooth once I pointed out it was a segue. Um, <laughs> it's Kemba Walker, another guy injured, really struggled. He's, um, if anyone listened to the live mailbag, we kind of discussed how difficult it is for people to evolve into a third option. And I've said on this podcast, I've said on guest appearances, I've probably wrote about it too, that Kemba might be having the Hayward treatment this year, a guy that's struggling to adapt and nobody really values the spacing and the leadership and the talent level that he brings to the floor and we won't value that until he's sick of the everyone being on his case and he decides to jump ship and then you're like 
oh man, I really wish Kemba had stayed. Kemba's <laughs> playing great. And, uh, look, I can be exactly the same. If Kemba goes one for 13, I'm screaming at my TV exactly the same way everybody else is. You know, we all ride that same roller coaster. It's just some of us get off before the peaks are too high and too low. Um, but what I do, what the reason this has led me to this is because against Portland, I thought that was one of his best games since his knee injury. I think that he looked really good turning the corner. His burst of speed was fantastic. He was very good at keeping the ball moving. He played like a metronome at points, like he was just the, the pivot point of an offensive attack. And he was super good at knowing when to pull up off those screens, knowing when to drive off those screens, or knowing when to defer, or better yet, knowing when to tell the big man who's in that delay, holding, waiting for the dribble handoff, like, just don't give me the rock. I'm going to come straight off you. You're going to fake the DHO. We're going to have JT. We're going to corner split action. And there was just moments like that where that veteran leadership kind of came into it. And I was like, Kemba looks really good right now. And this is the version of Kemba Walker you need. You don't need elite Kemba Walker because he's not a number one option. So he doesn't need to be elite there. He just mm -hmm. needs to be an elite third option. And his performance in Portland was super encouraging. What did you see from Kemba? Was you happy? Do you still think there's a way to go? Well, I still think there's probably a way to go from it, from the amount of evidence that we have at this point. There's no doubt it's been a it's been a rough season for Kemba. It's it's been up and down and all over the place. And you know the, the tough part is I just don't know how much of it is physical and how much of it is mental. And from the physical standpoint, it's you know where is that where is that knee really at? Because there's times where I feel like Kemba's getting Kemba like shots, but he's. Not, certainly hasn't been hitting them at Kemba-like rates for, for most of the season. And then there's even other times where you feel like you've seen him get into the lane or lose his handle on the ball or get too far into the lane and like not really be a little bit unsure of, of, of what his move is. And maybe part of that's, you know, what's my role here? Am I trying to do too much? Do I need to defer to, to Jalen and, and Jason? And he kind of mentioned that when he first came back and they were and the Jays were really rolling and he was like, I want them to do their thing. I'll figure it out. And I think that's a little bit of, of what we've seen. But as far as what he's doing recently in that Portland game, that that first quarter was by far the best quarter he's had in the entire season, bar none. I don't even think there's a question. But, you know, you talked about going back and rewatching some of these games earlier this week. I was rewatching the second half of that Nuggets game from from last Sunday. And I think that's part of where I started to see a difference because I've been begging for Kemba, even when he isn't successful all the time to drive to the lane more and just get in the paint, just the threat of Kemba being in the paint causes more confusion and more pressure on those defenses, which will ultimately open up more opportunities for everybody. And so if you look at that Denver game, and I think, you know, when we came on the pod last time, we were so hyped up from the way that fourth quarter ended 31 to eight, like that game flipped on its head so quickly that, it, you know, and Jason Tatum came in and closed it out. But, but really I went back in the end of that third quarter, is all tied to him and Jalen Brown. And a lot of it was Kemba getting in the lane, causing havoc. He made a couple of shots, but really it was him getting in the lane and then opening up some more space for Jalen that, that ultimately closed that gap to five. And then we all know what happened in the fourth. And then you look ahead to that Portland game. And I think he, you know, took that momentum from that. Like I said, that first quarter was unbelievably strong. I thought overall it was one of his best games of the year. And so I looked into a little bit of, of Kemba's recent numbers to try and see if we are seeing anything maybe that has more long-term effects. We've, we've seen three months of evidence that hasn't been ideal, but I think in the last month, two things that I found were Kemba in the last, so Kemba from January 1st until the end of March, when shooting, 
under under eight feet away from the basket. So pretty much in the paint, but I also wanted to include, you know, attacking the basket from the side because I think that's important as well. So under eight feet, he was shooting 53.9%. This month in six games, that's up to 70%. And from that, like I said, that penetration allows him to be able to make more passes, get more opportunities for, for other players. And so in that same time frame, from January to March, he was averaging 4.6 assists per game. This month in six games, it's at seven. And you saw that in the Portland game. You, know, you pointed out a couple of opportunities where I think he finished with seven or eight assists in that game. And so I do think that there is some positive signs for Kemba. Are they going to, you know, is this going to ultimately be the Kemba that we get the rest of the way? I hope so. I don't know if there's enough evidence to deficient, definitively say that, but I think we're seeing signs that this could be Kemba turning a corner. So the one thing that really stuck out to me is the penetration, as you're saying. And I've kind of been toying with the idea of, well, why hasn't Kemba been successful penetrating before? And the notion that I've got is because of the way they were running their pick and roll offense and because they were so reliant on that corn, that angle pick and roll, the pick and roll happening around the, the wing and slot area, that teams just weren't pushing their big man into hedge positions. They weren't switching so a big would be put onto the point guard. Now that Boston have become a little bit more unpredictable, they're running different types of actions. They're attacking in transition a lot more. The screens that are being set now aren't happening once the defense has already solidified itself. They're happening off drag screens during those transition periods. Kemba Walker's getting switched onto bigs considerably more than what I think he has done from earlier in the season. And I'd have to watch the film and look at the stats to really say that's a fact, but this is just an opinion. And his burst of speed now and the fact that he feels so comfortable is allowing him to really start attacking those big men. And I think that's allowing him to get into the to paint a lot more. And then, the, as you say, defenses have to rotate over. You have to respect somebody like Kemba once he hits that restricted area. But I do think attacking that, those bigs, and really forcing teams to have to make a decision like, do we play drop and open the mid-range up where we know Kemba's mm -hmm. comfortable? Or do we ask the big man to play show or up to touch? Or however we want to put our big, we need to know that there's a way that Boston are going to stretch us and allow Kemba to really put somebody in a blender. And I think that we're going to see more and more of that now. Um, yeah, just I hope so. Of the space, <laughs> just because of the space in Boston have, you know, if you run a 1-5 pick and roll with Kemba and Robert Williams, You've got Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum on weak and strong side. And it's just so easy. That's like, you know, like you cannot pinch in on this pick and roll because the minute you pinch in, you've got two of the best elite shoot, wing shooters in, in the league waiting to receive the ball yeah. and they're going to attack you too. So I do think that the way that one of the key aspects was moving away from half court sets and trying to get back into high tempo basketball, adding that unpredictability. And I'm enjoying it, man. I really am. The only thing I'd, the only other reason I think Kemba's struggled is I think that while back to backs are tiring and they're tough on the body, I think they're great for building rhythm. Yeah. And with Kemba Walker only playing one in every back to back, I think that even if he's coming off the back of a good game, he doesn't have the opportunity to build that rhythm because, hey, now you've got to sit out this game. So it might be four or five days until you're back on a basketball court playing competitive NBA ball. Yeah, I think that's a great point, and especially, you know, one of the frustrating parts of Kemba's season has been his three-point shooting. And when you think of Kemba, you know, before this year, almost all of his reasons, I don't, I don't have the, the numbers, I have to, to look this up, but, but mostly when you just think of Kemba Walker, he's shooting off the dribble. 
You know, he, he was so in control of the ball. He's not really been much of a spot up shooter. And I think that's, you know, when you get back to the part where you're talking about the Gordon Hayward role, you know, trying to kind of figure out, you know, you're an all-star and he could still be an, I, I don't think Kemba by any means is definitively done being an all-star. You know, I think there is still that opportunity, just like Gordon Hayward was a borderline all-star, you know, this year in Charlotte, you know, but for Kemba to be able to now be a shooter, to be a spot-up shooter versus someone that's constantly coming off pitch with the ball in their hands, because now that ball is going to be in Jalen, going to be in Jason Tatum's hands more. You know, I think that's part of that adjustment. And maybe to your point of, you know, not of sitting out those back-to-backs, that's getting into more of a rhythm, knowing your spots, knowing the feel, because because that feel is going to be different being that spot-up shooter versus uh, versus dribbling off the dribble or coming hard off a screen. It's true. And again, rhythm comes a lot into it when you're um, a pull-up shooter compared to a spot-up shooter because you have the rhythm of the way you're handling the ball, the way your body moves. Every All of your shot mechanics are built around the fact that you do everything within your dribble rhythm mm-hmm. and your body rhythm. And now being told to be like, hey, we want you to basically stay in rhythm without the ball in your hands. And this is what elite shooters, elite off-ball shooters, guys like Kyle Korver, JJ Reddick, this is why they have had the longevity in the league because it is really difficult to stay within a rhythm when you're parked in the corner or on the wing and you might not touch the ball for four or five possessions. But then Mm -hmm. when that rockets your hands, your your job is to hit that free. And it's super difficult. And I think that that is going to be part of Kemba's relearning process re-education process is like hey we need you to be super effective on ball but you're not going to be on ball as much as you're used to so now we need you to be super effective off ball too and Kemba's like okay because you know he wants to do that he spoke yeah. about when he first came to Boston one of the things one of the things he was so excited about was playing more off ball because it could add longevity to his career but I think he underestimated the challenge of becoming that off-ball guy and becoming that spot-up shooter threat and what that means in terms of mentally locked in and rhythmically, like body mechanically locked into a game where three, four possessions, it's going Jalen. You might touch it, but you've got to swing it to Jason because Jason's on a design play waiting for the back cut or waiting for the lob. And I think that's a real tough adjustment process for him. Um, I'm confident he's going to figure it out by the playoffs. I, I just think that he needs to... We need to take this restriction off him sooner or later so we can start getting him, as we said, this word again, into that rhythm. So yeah. once the playoffs come, he's going to be completely ready to go. Well, at least to his benefit, I don't. I think there's only – I'd have to double-check the schedule. I think there's only two more back-to-backs the, the remainder of the way. So while the schedule remains hectic, there should only be, I think, two more scheduled day-offs for Kemba. So, you know, and, and the crazy part is, you know, like I said, the, the schedule is so unbelievably hectic. Like, you know, we're recording this uh, on April 15th. Final game of the regular season is May 17th. So we're almost exactly a month away from the end of the season. So th- these games are going to come pretty rapidly. Uh, and I think that, you know, ultimately Kemba getting to where he needs to get to on offense, where you're saying that that, I, that you think he can get to. And, and I think he can get there too. I, like I said, I don't know definitively that he will, but I think he can. And that's that's the most important piece. Because Kemba is, for me, I think he's the ultimate ceiling of when we get to the playoffs. If he's found his role, if he's found what value he's bringing to this team on a night-to-night basis, and he can and he can bring that, that changes what this team can do come playoff time. So somebody I was speaking to on Locker Room, um, on that live mailbag, if anybody's listened to it, um, he suggested bringing Kemba off the bench, and but giving him starter minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, he, his argument was that Kemba's always, if you want to have Kemba on ball and 
ask him to play the role that he's excelled in his entire career. The way to do it is have him as your sixth man. He's still going to get his 27, 29 minutes a game, 30, 31 minutes, but he's not going to do it with Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. He's going to do it with the likes of Peyton Pritchard and Evan Fournier. So he'll have a floor spacer that can handle the ruck alongside him in Fournier, Mm -hmm. but he's going to have a much higher usage rate and be asked to carry a much higher offensive load. And while I think that's a really good idea, I also think it could be a really bad idea. Um, We saw Boston try and stagger two stars um, during the Kyrie, um, Al Horford, Jalen, Jason era. And it's really hard to keep everybody pleased. I mean, convincing Kemba Walker that now you're a six-man, you're a a max contract guy that's going to be a six-man, that must be a tough sell. Um, But I wouldn't mind seeing it for a couple of games towards the end of the season, you know, if you're in the fourth or fifth seed and there's no way you can drop out of the seeding that you're in and the, the team in front is already too far past where you were, why not? Why not try it and just see what happens just for a game and or two and let's see how Kemba reacts and what type of performance he puts on in that role. Yeah, I think that's an interesting idea and it's something I actually thought a little bit about after watching uh, the Timberwolves game uh, of couple about a week ago or so or whatever that was now when I saw D'Angelo Russell come off the bench and I was like that's an interesting role that I I didn't know that and I don't know if that was just for that game I haven't watched enough T-Wolves games but you know him coming off the bench made me think a little bit about what that would look like for for maybe Kemba doing that and I do think there could be certain matchups where where that makes sense you know Philly being one of them maybe if he has more time against that second unit you know we know it you know, uh, a team like Philly that possesses a lot of length has always been something Kemba struggles against. So maybe if you can get them into, and then their team is mostly long, but, you know, get them in a few more lineups where there's not as many athletic long guys out there to bother him, that could be something that works out and, and could be something interesting to try. But you mentioned, you know, keeping everybody happy. This is absolutely something that would have to be done with Kemba Walker being on board because I don't think the idea of, of mentally, from that mental aspect, which we which we've talked about on this podcast, you know, we don't really know where Kemba's at mentally trying to figure out his role. I don't necessarily love the idea of throwing in, hey, now you're going to be a six man on top of all of this to kind of figure out, you know, how a 30, mil, 30 plus million dollar player feels about going from that starter all star role to now moving to that six man. And, you know, if he's on board, I'm all for it. If it's something that, you know, he even has a little bit of reservations for, I don't think it's worth, you know, messing with what we see where it's going right now over these last 11 games I'd rather keep this progression going and kind of figure out the odds and ends as we go um, but I do think it's an interesting thought that has some merit and you know like I said if Kemba's on board I'd be willing to give it a shot but I also don't want to mess any more with that mentality than, than it's already been messed with yeah I mean they're doing so well at the moment it's one of those hey we've been screaming for them to fix it they've fixed it Let's not try and break it. Exactly. You know, it's tough. And no matter what happens in this Laker game, by the time people are listening, at the end of the day, they've really turned their season around. Um, Mm -hmm. It took them a bit longer than what everybody would have liked, but it's not been a normal year. So, you know, yeah, it's it's just You got to keep reminding yourself that of just how strange this year is. Like I said, the schedule alone is typically there's a lot of schedule losses that teams can kind of factor into a season. Almost every week there would be a scheduled loss kind of built into it, just playing four, five, six games in a week. Yeah, and the worst thing is it's the fact that you have no recovery time. I think that's been one of the biggest issues. And like, yeah. it's not just like Boston have been the only team to struggle, you know? Um, and But Boston are one of the first ones to start really figuring this stuff out. And some teams have benefited from this too. Let's mm-hmm. be quite honest. Uh, I think the Utah Jazz are phenomenal. 
I don't know if the Utah Jazz are first in the West in a normal season where there's less injuries and stuff. I still think they're one of the best teams in the West regardless. The, the Suns are right there with you. I, I think the Suns and Jazz have both had phenomenal health records. And so, you know, just from the from the standpoint of their players not missing as much time, definitely has benefited. Now, are they both still good teams? Absolutely. But to your point, like, they're, they might end up with the best two records by, you know, by proxy of, you know, the Nuggets losing Jamal Murray, the Lakers losing Anthony Davis and LeBron James for stretches. Kawhi and Paul George are always kind of in and out. Dame was carrying the load by himself without CJ and Nurkic for stretches for the Blazers. So, you know, with them being able to stay healthy, that probably does actually give them an advantage, which to a certain degree is just, just luck. Nothing you can really do about it. And it will all play itself out come playoff time. Yeah, and then you come out east, and it's the same thing out east. Boston are missing guys. Brooklyn have missed guys. Mm-hmm. Um, who else have been? I think Philly have missed guys throughout the year as well. I think yeah, and Bede was out for a little bit. He missed about yeah. two, three weeks, I think. So, I mean, everybody's had injuries. Stretches. You know, everyone's had these weird stretches. It's a weird year. I think the big, biggest thing you can hope for is by the time we get to the playoffs, you know, I always want to be that team that's obviously we're at full strength, but I want other teams to be at full strength too. I don't, I don't like beating teams when they're not at full strength. I want it to be our best versus your best. And it's yeah, our best no that finds a way. I don't want any excuses. Yeah. I want no excuses. I want full bragging rights and I don't want you to be like, but we did you wait until <laughs> no, I don't want none of that. Nope. Um, I, I remember speaking to some Knicks guys probably about six months ago and they were like, would you like the Knicks to be good again as a Boston guy? And I'm like, yeah, that's like a 100%. legendary. Yeah, I want that rivalry. I want those games like where they really matter. And um, that's what I want every night to be, basically. I want it your best. I want you to give your best. I want us to give our best. And let's see who wins. And I don't know whether that's just because I've grew up watching and participating in combat sports, and that's just the way it's been. Um, but you just want it that way. Do you know what I mean? Uh, it's it's going to be fun. And like this Lakers game is one where there's, there's excuses. There's no LeBron. There's no AD. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I, I'm, I think Dennis Schroeder's playing. I think, um, you know, Tyler Horton Tucker, Kuzma, um, Drummond doesn't really sound like a team that won a championship last year. You know, no disrespect to the Lakers, but without LeBron and AD, you, you're quite average. So I, I'm... You know, if Boston lose, then Boston lose. But if they win, there's no bragging rights that come with that. Yeah. Well, well, I will disagree with you on one point, Adam. You know, as someone that's not a, a combat sport guy, I will say if I ever do find myself in that situation, I do hope that my opponent is actually diminished in some form. That's going to be the only chance I got. I, I'm not typically much of a fighter here. So if I do find myself in that situation, I will take any advantage that I can find. Hey, you can only beat what's in front of you, dude. Hey, there you go. One leg, one eye, doesn't matter. In front of you, it's the only thing you can beat at that moment in yeah. time. Yeah, give me that guy that Celtics... you're describing. <laughs> I'll fight that guy. But that's what the Celtics have to do now. They have to beat what's in front of them. Don't come into a game thinking there's no LeBron and no AD, so it's going to be easy. Come in thinking there's no LeBron and there's no AD. Let's get the job done. Finish the West Coast road trip undefeated. Head home back east. Get ready for the Warriors game and spank those guys too with no clay and no Wiseman. And mm-hmm. that's the mentality that they're developing right now. And whether or not that's because the media have called them out or whether it's just, hey, we're healthy for once. We haven't been healthy all year. Let's <laughs> show everybody what we're actually capable of. That I mean, we're kind of hitting on the same drum here. I think I've touched on every one of my talking points. Is there anything you wanted to hit on before we uh, let these fine folks get on with their Friday? 
No, man, I'm just uh, I'm excited to be talking hoops with you. This is our first time kind of going one on one here, man. And this is uh, this has been a lot of fun. So I'm excited to, to keep doing this and, you know, be on these Friday podcasts with you. Yep. Every Friday. So anyone listening, make sure you go follow Will Weir at. Yeah, I'll, I'll give that a shout out real quick. You can find me personally on uh, both Twitter and Instagram at Wilbon13. Two L's, W-I-L-L-B-O-N-13. Uh, and then also, if you guys could, go ahead and hit up at Green Envy Pod. That's another podcast that uh, that I have along with uh, with Greg. will be popping on here later this week. Awesome. Uh, Greg will be with us for the Monday episode. Live Mailbag will be back and uh, we'll be recording next Monday if anybody wants to join in. As usual, you can find me at Adam Taylor NBA wherever you find social media. I'll try and be everywhere. I'm ubiquitous. <laughs> Look at the words, the grammar. Every, anyway, everybody, as usual, please try and hit that five-star um, rating. Leave that nice written review. And more importantly, try recommending us to any of your Celtics diehard friends or family. Word of mouth is always the best form of compliment that you can give us. And if you don't like us, then just let me know why and we'll try fix it. You know, We'll try and make it better for you. Everybody have a good one. Stay safe. You'll hear from us again on Monday.